This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Depth. I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Charles Feldman. You hear the clock ticking? We wait. We wait. We wait for election <laughs> results. But so far, nothing to point us toward any kind of definitive conclusion to the midterm elections or even key local elections like, I don't know, who's going to be the mayor of Los Angeles? We'll go in depth into why it takes so long now and whether that's a good thing or maybe it's a bad thing. The keys to the uh, House might be here in California. Several close races could decide which party gets to run things. And we'll head to Georgia, where a runoff election could decide control of the Senate. But then there's the uh, Donald Trump factor. The stock market having one of its best days in a long, long time. It's because of the inflation numbers that came out today. We'll go in depth on that. President Biden is going to be meeting face-to-face with China's leader. That's next week. So will it help relax rising tensions? Elon Musk describing a potentially grim outlook for Twitter's future. We'll have more on that. And turtles. Yes, turtles are a hot commodity these days. So much so, people are clamoring to get them as pets, which is putting them in danger. But we start with the slow vote count. Kim Alexander is president of the California Voter Foundation. Kim, thanks for being with us. So we only recently learned that we're going to get some more updated results on the L.A. mayoral race a little bit later in the afternoon. We weren't expecting it until tomorrow originally. But people are starting to wonder, not just in California, but around the country. Uh, it does seem as if getting results are taking longer and longer and longer than what many of us remembered not that long ago. Is that an accurate perception? Yes, that is an accurate perception. It is taking longer because more people are casting vote-by-mail ballots, and vote-by-mail ballots take longer to count. They have to be verified. The voter signature has to be verified. And before they're even opened and inspected, you have to make sure that that voter is not voted somewhere else. So we've created lots of opportunities to make sure nobody is left behind in the voting process by allowing for same-day voter registration, in-person voting, vote-by-mail voting. But that also means there's a lot more responsibility on the back end for election officials to make sure that only eligible voters vote, nobody's voting more than once, and only validly cast ballots get counted. Kim, is it fair to say that COVID-19, the pandemic that we've been living through for so long now, really changed the way uh, we vote in this country in in that so many people were forced to vote for mail, uh, forced to go and and cast their vote early uh, for safety reasons. Really, it changed things when it came to the 2020 vote. We're seeing much different now, and it's going to be the wave of the future. So in other words, if you don't like it, get used to it because (laughs) it's not going to change. Yeah, I mean, it's we already were moving in that direction quite a bit before the pandemic came along. We saw California voters casting vote by mail ballots by, you know, more than 50 percent a couple of years ago. And a number of counties moved to what's called the Voters' Choice Act, which mailed everybody, everybody a ballot, plus gave gives in-person voting options, as L.A. County does. After the pandemic, the legislature decided, let's keep mailing everybody a ballot. So we've now done it for the last four statewide elections and looking at the results for the past three, the June primary, the recall election last year in November 2020, over 90% of the ballots that were cast in those three elections came in as vote by mail ballots. And each one of them had to be, you know, individually verified and, and uh, opened and extracted and 
flattened and, you know, you used to do all that counting right there at the voting place, but now it's all happening at the central location in the elections office. We took a look at uh, the, the rate of vote counting this time uh, in 2004 when less than a third of the ballots were cast by mail and 80% of all ballots had been counted at this stage uh, back in 2004 hmm. versus June 2022, just a few months ago, less than half the ballots were counted at this stage. So this is the new normal unless we start making some changes and getting people to start moving back to voting in person or allowing people to take their vote by mail ballots to a location where they can securely scan them on the spot and get them counted, which some counties have experimented with and we hope to look yeah. into in the future. But, but here's the thing, Kim. Uh, you were mentioning before the trade-off uh, that by having more people being able to vote over longer periods of time and by mail, uh, that the trade-off is that you have to be a lot more responsible on the on the back end to make sure that the right people are voting and that everything is counted. But there's another trade-off, isn't there? And 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 it's the dangerous one, and it's what's happening all over the country. And that is that the longer it takes to come up with results, people who rightly or wrongly have suspicions about the voting process itself. They point to these delays and they go, aha, something must be going on behind closed doors. That's why it's taking so long. And that's a problem. Well, I would argue that the bigger problem is that we've developed this culture of election denialism that's become normalized. No, no, I, 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 Kim, I agree leaders with you. that are fomenting that. But yeah, I hear you completely. I mean, I, I definitely you know, we are concerned about people having those misperceptions, which is why a lot of election officials have started live streaming their vote counts and trying to, you know, pre-bunk those kinds of, of views. So it's difficult, though. I mean, this isn't the first election where it's happened, where the results look like they were going one way, you know, on election night and then are going in a different direction after more ballots were counted. And um, I, that's why a lot of campaigns do have observers at election offices monitoring this process and keeping a close eye on it. So I just think that, you know, it, unfortunately, we're in this time where people are very susceptible to all kinds right. of claims. Why, why don't we do why don't we why don't we do what they do in almost all, every European country, which is why don't we do electronic voting? It's secure. They've gone through all kinds of rigorous uh, exams in these other countries, and they're satisfied that uh, electronic voting is not only accurate, but it's efficient and it's quick, and it would eliminate a lot of these problems. People could still vote over different periods of time. They could still vote from home, but the results would come almost instantaneously. Well, I think you're talking about Internet voting, which is actually a terrible idea. There's no security system that can make sure that that happens securely. We did have paperless electronic voting. We got rid of it because without a paper trail, there's no independent way to verify the well, election results. They haven't had so. any problem. They, well, I don't know. They they vote that way in a lot of countries. and they. Have, I, I'm they not aware of any country except Estonia that allows for online voting. And no, not countries like, online, but electronic voting is my point. Yeah, I'm actually not aware of that many countries actually doing paperless electronic voting either. It's really gone out of fashion. The reason why other countries are able to get their ballots counted faster generally is they're on paper. But they are they have like one or two contests. They don't have I mean, I had 32 contests on my ballot. So we do use scanning technology to count our ballots. And a lot of those countries aren't allowing this uh, vote by mail balloting, which I think is really the, the reason why we have this 
slowdown. It's just very labor intensive to to count all these ballots. Kim, we're a little tight on time, but I'd like to ask you this. No matter what side of the aisle you might be on, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, when someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says, hey, in our state, we can count over 7 million votes in a matter of hours. Meanwhile, other states with much smaller populations take days, if not weeks. When he says something like that, is it fair to say a lot of people hear him and say, maybe he has a point? Well, the states that can count their ballots quickly don't give voters as many opportunities to vote. They don't have vote, you know, vote by mail laws that allow people to vote by mail for any reason. They'll have very restrictive laws. They don't allow ballots to be accepted after the election day as long as they're postmarked by election day. We do that, and a lot of Western states do that. So you see a pretty big divide in the country between the Western states that are embracing more widespread use of vote by mail and some of the eastern states that that aren't allowing that. And so, yeah, they may have a faster vote count, but who are they leaving out of the election because of the restrictions on their voting process? Kim, thank you again. That's Kim Alexander, president of the California Voter Foundation. California might end up deciding which party controls the House. There are 11 competitive races just right now, still too close to call. Some are right here in Southern California, particularly in Orange County and the Inland Empire. Political analyst uh, Louis DeCipio is with us. He's a political science professor at UC Irvine. Thanks for being with us. So uh, was that the anticipation that, because I don't remember that being sort of out there much, that California could end up being the state that decides which party controls the House? Is it a surprise? Uh, it's a little bit of a surprise, um, and I ultimately don't think California will determine a uh, majority in the House, but we do have a lot of close races, and I think that's a result of the redistricting commission. One of its charges was to make more competitive seats, and it really succeeded. About 10 of our seats are competitive this year. Yeah, what races here in Southern California should we be paying close attention to? Well, the two closest are, are here in Orange County. Um, we have a race between uh, Katie Porter and Scott Baugh in the 47th. Um, that's separated by less than a percent at this point. Uh, and then a district in, um, well, South Orange County and North San Diego County uh, uh, with the incumbent Mike Levin is also relatively close. Um, either of those could really go either way. Um, others that I'm looking at, um, the 45th here in um in Orange County, that's uh, incumbent Michelle Steele uh, facing a pretty serious challenge. Um, and then there are a couple in the Central Valley uh, that could go either way at this point. Here in California, you know, we're a state that we've gone kind of we're at the point where we're not used to being instrumental in many ways to the outcome of national elections. We we rarely play a key role in presidential elections because usually we kind of find out who's already won enough electoral votes before it even gets to California. Uh, so is it a, an anomaly that when it comes to Congress, we play a bigger role? Yes, it is. And I think uh, 2022 is a little bit unique in that we have, you know, we've had a pretty even division of Congress for a while, but this year we have an even more even division. So, you know, any state that comes in late and California comes in late because of our uh, uh, our voting procedures um, can have a real dis seem to have a disproportionate uh, impact. Um you're absolutely right. In, in presidential races, uh, California being solidly Democratic means that, you know, our, our electoral votes are sort of counted before the election uh, takes place. You know, back in the 1990s, we were a little bit more competitive in presidential elections, and the California vote was uh, important in those. Do the close races here mean the redistricting process 
is working? It's good? Uh, it's better than the other states. How about that? Um, okay. I think I think it could be better. But yeah, one of the charges for the uh, redistricting commission was to comp- create competitive seats uh, where they could. You know, obviously, some places you really can't because there's just so many Democrats or so many Republicans. Uh, and particularly here in Orange County, but then also in the Central Valley, uh, the redistricting commission achieved its goals. Uh, and that's why we're seeing, you know, races that are separated by a few percentage points. Let me carry over a bit of a discussion that we were having in our last segment, because our last segment, we were talking about why it takes so long for people nowadays to find out who their mayors are, their governors are, their 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 congresspeople are, uh, and, and why we got ourselves into this particular pickle. Uh, and partly the answer, as we learned in our last segment, was because by opening up the field and making it easier for people to vote, which was a good thing, by mail ballots, things like that, it also, the downside is, it takes longer and longer to get definitive answers, especially in close races. Uh, But there's another downside, which we also went into a little bit, which is that it also feeds the paranoia that some people have that there's something funny going on when it takes two weeks to find out who actually won an election. Is there a compromise that would give us a quicker result and then head off all of those conspiracy theorists? Well, I think one way we can head it off is having more states move in the direction of California. And you are actually seeing that where there is expanded early voting. um, There's same day registration with provisional ballots. I mean, those sorts of things which are good, small d democracy kinds of activities we're seeing in in a wider number of states this year. So more states will look like California. That doesn't really solve the problem that you're identifying, though. Um, You know, yes, technology ultimately will be able to solve some of those problems. But I think the, the same day registration and the need to use provisional ballots for those are always going to create a a lag um, in terms of counting the vote. The only way you can really overcome that or or reassure people is by having a very open process. And I think the uh, county registrars of voters have been very careful both in 2020 and now in 2022 to ensure that all interested parties, particularly the political parties, but but also others in the community, uh, can monitor the process and see that it's being conducted fairly and and equitably. Okay, Lewis, thank you, Lewis DeCipio. He is a political science professor at UC Irvine. And a little bit later on, President Biden will have a big meeting early next week with China's leader. We'll go in depth into what the two might discuss. And turtles, yeah, the ones with shells, are facing <laughs> big threats because. Too many people want them as pets. As opposed to the turtles without shells. Yes, the shellless, the the, the famed shellless (laughs) turtle. Yes. Right now, though, well, control of the House might come down to a few key races here in California. It's shaping up, as of now at least, like control of the U.S. Senate will once again come down to Georgia. That's where Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock will face off again next month in a runoff election against Republican Herschel Walker, the former football star. With us now is Jeffrey Lazarus, political science professor at Georgia State University. Uh, Jeffrey focuses on Congress and the strategic behavior of candidates and legislators. Thanks for joining us today. First of all, what do you see voter turnout looking like in Georgia if, in fact, it turns out the control of the the U.S. Senate will come down to this particular race. And that said, which side would have the advantage? Uh, Those are two really good questions. Um, The first uh, one about turnout um, really comes down to how much uh, media there's going to be around the race. And when this happened a couple of years ago, 
uh, four candidates spent just an astronomical amounts of money in the hundreds of millions of dollars just on the runoff alone. Um, and so uh, turnout could be quite high if there's, you know, just a ton of media around it again and people are aware and engaged and interested. Um, of course, there could also be the opposite effect in that people are just sick of it by the time the runoff comes comes around. Um, in terms of who has the advantage, um, that is a really hard question to answer. Traditionally, uh, Republicans are considered to have the advantage in uh, runoffs because um, Republican voters uh, typically turn out a little bit better. But the story of this election so far, at least preliminarily, is one of higher than expected Democratic turnout. So um, really, it's it's probably a toss up at this point. Are you surprised how close this race is turning out to be, considering the controversy that continues to swirl around uh, Walker? Um, in some ways, yes. and In some ways, no. Right. Uh, the amount of controversy uh, surrounding him, the number of individual scandals that you can point to um, is exceptionally large. And um, in in years past, not that long ago, a candidate like Walker, uh, by the time you got to Election Day, would just be dead on arrival. Um, but today, politics operates a lot differently um, for a couple of reasons. One, Trump fundamentally redefined um, what types of scandal a politician can weather and just, you know, baldly walk his way through um, without really acknowledging it very much. Um, and another reason is that polarization is so much higher and uh, people's partisan leanings are so much stronger that it takes a lot more to get and to get most voters to vote for the other candidate. Well, Jeffrey, it's expected Donald Trump will announce a 2024 presidential run next week. He has hinted big time about that. But there's also word that he's being urged by supporters to hold off until after the runoff election so as to not impact it. Does that really matter? Is he, in fact, a big, big factor in the, in this race, whether he's announcing for 2024 or not? Um, Trump has the effect of making everything about Trump. So if Donald Trump announces and draws a lot of media attention his way, that is going to make the runoff here a little bit more of a referendum on his tenure as president and his uh, possible like uh, his possible second term. Uh, so if he does announce, then, yes, I do think that that become a, that could become a factor in the race. OK, Jeffrey, thank you again. That's Jeffrey Lazarus, uh, political science professor at Georgia State University. The runoff coming a month from Election Day. So what is it? December 6th, I believe. Mm hmm. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Felton. Latest inflation numbers are out, and analysts and those on Wall Street are thrilled. Yes, we still have inflation. Prices in October were up 7.7% compared to a year ago. But that number is lower than what many economists expected. Because of that, the stock market soared with us, as Fox Business reporter Jerry Willis. You know, uh, it's gotten to the point in the past couple of months, for the most part, that if I look on my phone and I see the, the arrow pointing up as it was this morning, I presume my phone's upside down, <laughs> but it was I, I can't blame you for that. I got to say, uh, you know, I follow these markets pretty closely and we've just endure, endured a wrath of pain. Uh, if you are uh, somebody who has a 401k or you like to 
you know, invest in stocks, you felt the pain over time. This was a welcome reprieve. But I got to tell you, the party was mostly for people on Wall Street, right? Because at the end of the day, inflation is still at 7.7%. Well, uh, is the Fed's strategy working? Interest rates are going up, inflation cooling somewhat. Is the strategy working? We're beginning to see glimmers that they are having an impact. And of course, the question is, and the hard thing to do if you're the Fed is you balance that against creating a massive recession where people lose all kinds of jobs. Uh, the jobless number spikes through the roof and people, you know, don't have the income they need to sustain their household. So it's really a tough choice, right? Um, and very difficult to manage your way through this uh, without creating nasty economic effects for the broad economy. And here's, though, uh, Jerry, what I think uh, scares a lot of people, scares me, is that historically, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Fed is is uh, notorious for getting it wrong, right? I, I mean, they, they often, in well, their balancing act, don't get it right. You, you know, you make a very good point. Um, and that's because it's a very hard thing to do. It's not because... They don't understand things or they're not well-intentioned. It's just very hard to figure out what the economy is going to do next and what it will take to stop just this kind of uh, just painful, difficult uh, uh, inflation. You know, look, people haven't seen this in a long, long time. So when they hear the Fed chairman or the president himself say, well, this is temporary, it's not going to last a long time. They believe that. But as you guys know, because I can tell from your voices, you're probably about my age. If you've seen inflation before, you know it's sticky. It remains. It hangs around. It's hard to get rid of, mainly because it starts influencing salaries and wages. And that starts an ex escalation, a spiral that can uh, just go out of control, right? So Price increases, feed on price increases. You can't afford the eggs that are up 43%. You demand new wages, the wages go up. And now, uh, you know, your employer can't afford things, right? So it's a very difficult situation to manage. But possibly if we see a couple more quarters like this, maybe we'll get fewer rate increases and that will make the market happy too. Jerry, I can't help but think there's some people driving in their cars right now listening to us have this conversation, uh, paying an awful lot for gas, especially here on the West oh. Coast. Uh, inflation cooling somewhat, interest rates uh, keep going up. Is there a chance that the Fed might now consider lowering interest rates or is that baked in? Is it gonna, it's good, They're going to keep going up. Well, good question, right? And I think what's going to happen here is we're going to get a 75 basis point rate hike in December. And then I think, you know, it's off to the races. We'll probably fall down to 50 basis points and then maybe even lower still. But what the Federal Reserve chairman said at his most recent meeting was that what he expected to happen is more rate hikes, but lower rate hikes. So this string of, you know, 75 basis points, that's Look, that's three quarters of a point, a percentage point. OK, for those of you who don't spend your time on Wall Street. So <laughs> that's going to come to an end and we're going to go to lower uh, increases, but more frequent ones. Now, I don't think they go beyond five percent on the Fed funds rate, but, you know, anything could happen. 
Um, and this is what the market is trading on. Why this do is I, what we care about. Why do I have a feeling, Jerry, that tomorrow when I look at my phone and the arrow is pointing up, it is going to be upside down and, and I have to turn it up? <laughs> well, I just know it. I just know it. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, oh. that could be true. Well, you know, markets swing, right? I mean, that's that's the very definition of a market, that the prices are not stable, that they move around, and you have to be okay with that if you're going to invest in the market and understand that volatility is a watchword when you're investing in stocks. Long term, it's a good place to be, though, I have okay. to say. Jerry, thank you. I've got to go over and turn Charles' phone upside down. Thanks for joining us again. That's Fox Business reporter Jerry Willis. You know, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? I'm going to actually keep it sideways. Keep it sideways. That way I won't know. <laughs> It'll be very comforting. I won't know if it's up or down the market. I like it. Oh, tensions with China. Well, they've certainly escalated the past few years. It started with former President Trump and his fight with China over trade and tariffs. President Biden uh, hasn't exactly eased tensions, especially after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went and did that visit. Remember that to uh, Taiwan? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There were some other members of Congress, I believe, who went over as well. But she's the one who really gained a lot of attention and really kind of uh, upset the the leaders uh, in in China. Uh, That could change, however. The president meeting with China's leader, Xi Jinping, that's set for Monday on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. With us to to discuss this more is Ray Zong with the uh, Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Thanks for taking some time for us today. First of all, just how bad are tensions right now between the United States and China? And can this meeting between the two leaders do anything to cool things down? I think that the meeting between Xi and Biden is most likely going to be maintenance work, a smaller scale check in. At the moment, what we're hearing from the State Department is they are not disclosing any details of a potential meeting and are referring people to the White House, who has put out a very small, succinct and very generalized description of meetings they hope to have at the G20. Um, As for how bad things are between China and the United States, We are at a point where diplomatic relations are strained and the economic and security sectors of China and the United States have taken a more competitive turn. But this uh, has been in the works for some time and has spanned administrations or in Xi's case, singular administration that he has now gained additional power in. You know, I, I wonder, too, if we all put too much stock in these uh, personal meetings. I mean, uh, Biden and she know each other for quite some time. When uh, Biden was vice president, he and if memory serves me right, he and and President Xi, who was not then, I think, uh, as yet president, uh, did some touring together. They know each other for a long time. They've had several phone calls since Mr. Biden has been in the White House as president. So do we look to these personal meetings as, as being a, a kind of big deal when maybe it isn't? Or is there something it brings that all those other things I just talked about are not as important as maybe one singular face-to-face? Personal meetings are first and foremost symbolic gestures that um, kind of put a face to lower level meetings between the Chinese Foreign Ministry and the American State Department. So um, just to note that when Biden was vice president and she was 
uh, an underling of Hu Jintao back in 2011 when they met, they were the relationship between China and the United States was one where stoking mutual business interests was in the interests of both governments and both Biden and Xi were not in, uh, behind the wheel of their respective governments. That dynamic has changed a lot going into these 2022 meetings. And so as a result, they both have to really consider what they want their secretary of state, foreign minister to try to do next and hash out the details after the meetings have concluded, barring any unexpected deal announcements or other uh, policy changes that are rolled out at the meetings themselves. I can remember much was made of the president's uh, meeting in Saudi Arabia, that famed fist bump with the crown prince a while back. Human rights was key on that agenda. Uh, is that much the same in this meeting? And, and by, by that, I'm thinking issues when it comes to, for instance, the, the plight of the Uyghurs. So in terms of human rights, I think the State Department and the White House and most governments, when they say they'll bring it up, they do bring it up. But then again, there's the expectation of will anything actually change as a result? And because this is a two country relationship, you have to manage your expectations for what China does. And in terms of what Xi Jinping has done, um, in terms of his how he's perceived Taiwan, how he's perceived Hong Kong, how he's perceived Xinjiang. We don't really expect anything to change domestically as a result of having one talk with a a U.S. president or uh, in China recently, the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. Okay. Ray Zong, Ray, thank you. Ray Zong from the Wilson Center Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Chris Edens, I'm Charles Feldman. Well, Twitter seems to be in rough financial shape. Elon Musk recently sent emails to workers writing the economic picture ahead is dire. He says the company was too heavily dependent on advertising and vulnerable to pullbacks in brand spending. And that's why he said it needs to boost revenue from subscriptions. Musk previously said the company was losing $4 million a day, but are things worse than what he's even saying? Dan Ives is a tech analyst with Wedbush Securities. Dan, thanks for being with us. Uh, until he bought it, uh, it was a public company, so all the figures would have been publicly available. Is what we're hearing now from him about the dire financial shape of Twitter accurate? Look, I think since Musk bought Twitter, it's an absolute debacle. Advertisers are running for the hills. Controversy continues by the hour and I'd say by the day. And monetization is going to be just a major issue for Musk and Twitter. He's cutting costs. But right now, this is essentially a money pit situation, and it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I think some people are worried. Could you see that this could be the potential death of Twitter? Look, I think that would be extreme, but I believe there's a chance, and a 15% chance, could this be a MySpace 
on AOL.com. If it continues to go down this road over the next five, seven years, yeah. And I think the problem is, is that from the beginning, this was always going to be a disaster acquisition. Must pay $20 billion too much for it. Now it's a levered deal. He has to cut costs. And the controversy that he brings to Twitter is causing advertisers to run for the hills. And that is just a very bad situation. It's dire would, I think, be a positive word to describe this. I guess what I don't understand, and maybe, Dan, you can help me uh, understand it, is that before this, uh, you know, so many people would praise Elon Musk as, you know, they were calling him. He was like a genius and, uh, you know, because of Tesla and because of uh, SpaceX. SpaceX, Yeah. Yeah. And and yet, I don't know, since this whole, to use your word, I think, debacle with Twitter uh, began, uh, you can almost write a textbook on how not to do something. Uh, And I think it will go down in many textbooks because Musk's successes, historical, and the reason he's the richest person in the world is from a technology perspective. If you go to Tesla, SpaceX, and even in some ways if you go back to PayPal, the problem here is that Twitter's a whole other animal. Social media headwinds. It's always been a difficult business to figure out in a Rubik's Cube. And essentially, he got into just a terrible deal he couldn't get out of. The courts ultimately were going to force him to hold the deal. And now he's in a situation where he's hurting his brand globally and ultimately hurting Tesla. And that's why this is, you know, this is really turned into just very dark times for Twitter, for Musk, and really for. You know, many that felt the pain even as Tesla shareholders. Well, Dan, maybe let's take this a step further. Uh, are other social media giants like fight Facebook in trouble, especially you take into account the big layoffs that were announced by Meta, their parent company, uh, earlier this week? Yeah, look, the clock has struck midnight on the hyper growth of social media. And I think you're seeing that. You saw that in, obviously in Twitter and Facebook. Look, that's why Zuckerberg renamed it and went after the metaverse. But the problem there is that that's, a head-scratching strategy that ultimately over the long term is going to be an uphill battle. That's why they're cutting costs. And you're seeing similar things across other parts of social media. Apple also has these privacy, iOS privacy issues, which has been a gut punch to the business models. So the clock struck midnight on growth for social media, and, and, and you're starting to see some of the negative ramifications of that here. So where do people who use Twitter where do they migrate to if they're so inclined to migrate? Well, the problem now with Twitter is, are they going to force you to pay? Remember, that this is like you going to a restaurant getting bread for free for 20 years. Now, all of a sudden, they said they're going to charge you $3 for bread. So, so that, that's a big problem in terms of the monetization of Twitter. And that's why you're going to look at TikTok. TikTok has been the huge share gainer versus Twitter. And many could go off the platform if the lightning rod of controversy continues. But every day, Musk continues to get himself more into a quicksand situation with Twitter. Okay, it'll be interesting to see where this eventually leads us. I mean, we're so early into this. Uh, Dan, thank you again. That's Dan Ives, tech analyst with the Wedbush Securities. Everyone seems to like turtles. Who doesn't appreciate watching a turtle move around slowly, eating plants and doing other 
turtle things. Turtle things. Yeah, lots yeah. of people like them so much that it's creating a big demand for them as pets. Yeah, that's not necessarily a good thing. Wildlife experts are saying because of that demand, there's been an increase in turtle poaching, which is contributing to the global decline of rare freshwater turtle and tortoise species. With us now to talk more about this, Lou Parati, Director of Conservation Programs at Roger Williams Park Zoo. That's in Providence, Rhode Island. His zoo is watching over 16 small little turtle hatchlings that were confiscated in a recent wildlife bust. Uh, Lou, Thank you for joining us uh, on In-Depth. First of all, let's get to the brass tacks of this. Just how big of a problem is turtle poaching right now? Um, I mean, it, it's not a new issue. I mean, we've seen turtle poaching coming from the other side for decades. You know, I mean, we would get, you know, large busts coming into the U.S. from Asian countries. Uh, Madagascar is another country that's targeted for their endemic species. But now what's really alarming is we're seeing it going the other way, you know, and with the depletions of populations in Asia and, and other parts of the world, now there's a demand for North American turtles. And a lot of these turtles have, you know, high value for, for pets. You know, I mean, we're in that apartment pet age now, and especially in Asia, um, where people look for small things to fit in small places, and turtles fit that bill. Um, so how does so, it yeah. how does it actually work? I mean, walk walk us through this. So, do people who are poaching these turtles do they go to I don't know what freshwater ponds and they swipe the turtles and and haul them away? How does it actually work? Yeah, I mean, there's there's different levels of it, right? So you have your your average family that might go on a hike in the woods and find a, a box turtle in the woods and say, oh, you know, this this will make a cool pet. We'll take it home, right? And then you have people that are doing it on a local level, maybe breeding or, you know, wild collecting these animals to sell them on a small scale. And then you have now what we're seeing are criminal syndicates that actually come over here, scout out populations, look for areas, recruit people to go out and collect large numbers of these animals um, to create large shipments that are then sent to Asian and European markets. And, you know, some of them are targeted as pets. Some of the, some of them are targeted for medicinal use or um, food, you know, for, for food. Seems to me that I mean, from what you've just told us, there's really quite an extreme difference here from the family that might be out hiking or camping and coming across the turtle. And then, Daddy, can can we keep this? Can we bring it home to this syndicates who are going out there, you know, going after these turtles to sell them on the black market here and, and overseas? What can be done to to, you know, cut down on that to go after these people? Well, you're right. I, I mean, the commercial trade in illegal wildlife is, you know, second to drugs in, in money making. So, you know, it, it's profitable. It's lucrative. Um, as long as there's a demand, there'll always be someone trying to get the supply. Um, so I think, you know, you know, you guys uh, doing this story and getting the word out there that this is a problem. And, you know, I think the old if you see something, say something applies here. Um, of course, for for, you know, us wildlife biologists and conservation biologists, you know, we'd like to see stricter laws on, you know, trade um, and then even local level population protections. You know, some of these might be, fed, you know, candidates and some of our, of these targeted species are candidates for federal listing. So, you know, if you have stringent laws on protecting these animals, you know, you're going to have stricter penalties. And I think we need more um, stricter and harsher penalties for the, for the poachers that are caught. Um, 
with this doing this kind of uh, activity. And and what what I'm curious what what law actually is being broken because you mentioned you know the family that finds uh, uh, perhaps a couple of turtles at a nearby pond and they decide to. Uh, adopt them as as pets are they even though it's on a small scale are they breaking some law and when does it become illegal what what's the threshold yeah that 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 depends state to state like like here in rhode island it's illegal to possess any native wildlife without a permit so basically you cannot collect a tadpole to bring it home to watch it metamorph into a frog um so all wildlife uh, in most states protect their native wildlife from collection. Um, and of course, it's it's strictly illegal to sell or profit from native wildlife. And that's, I think, pretty much statewide. Um, I mean, there are some exceptions, of course. Okay, so how do, um, how do, you, how do you buy, when, when you go to a pet store and you buy a turtle, uh, that's legal, isn't it? Well, depends. If, you know, like, for instance, you know, the turtles that... You, you had saw that we're uh, looking after now these 16 little musk turtles. Um, these things were somebody breeding them in their backyard. Um, and then, you know, we do get some in pet stores, but, you know, pet stores are required to know their laws. And, you know, they cannot be selling native wildlife. Uh, within states that are, it's illegal to sell native wildlife. And Lou, is there a way when you go into a pet store that you can know that in fact the the uh, the turtle that you're purchasing for your family is in fact legal? Well, I would I would hope that anybody who'd want to get a pet would do a little research on it and understand where it comes from and know their local uh, and federal laws as far as what you know you need to possess that animal. Yeah, and um, I, so I think. And I, and I take it, go to a reputable store. You should be okay. And go to a reputable yeah. store, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, we have seen atrocities in pet stores selling native wildlife um, and, you know, claiming they didn't get it from the wild. And there's always a story they tell, but um, we know they're being collected. Lou, quickly, quickly before we let you go, those 16 little turtles at your zoo, how are they doing and what's next for them? Um, they're doing fantastic. Um, whenever we get these confiscations in, we disease test them because we certainly, you know, our goal is from confiscation to conservation, right? We, the ultimate goal is to release these little turtles. Um, but we also want to make sure that, you know, if they're held by someone who illegally is holding them, we don't know what kind of husbandry they were doing, what kind of um, diseases they were exposed to. So we certainly want to make sure, and they've all been tested and we're waiting on results now. Um, whether those turtles are carrying anything that could be potentially um, dangerous to wild populations. And then our goal is uh, in the spring to get those guys back to the uh, place that they were poached from. All right. Lou, thank you. Lou Parati, he is the uh, Director of Conservation Programs at Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence, Rhode Island. So stick to rabbits. Stick to rabbits. And and if we took one thing from today's show, KNX In-Depth, there have been turtles that don't have shells. Millions and millions of years, of years ago. ago. Yes. <laughs> they, and, don't, and they don't roam around anymore. No, You're then not... they got uh, smart and decided they needed shelter, <laughs> exactly. and they have shells now. <laughs> yes. That'll do it for today's show. Uh, for Charles, I'm Chris. We're back with more KNX In-Depth tomorrow.